0: Thank you, Roma, for this nice uh, introduction. Uh, Also, I want to thank uh, Roma and Franco for organizing uh, this event. And I also want to thank Professor Milani to invite us to this uh, program in uh, Iranian uh, studies. Uh, Professor Milani participated in 2018 in a uh, conference uh, in Vienna on Iran in the international system. Uh, we had uh, international participants, scholars, academics from all, all over the world. From the US, of course, there was others, Melanie, but uh, also uh, Shireen, uh, Professor Shirin Hunter. And uh, from Europe, we had, had participants from uh, Paris, uh, Vienna, Warsaw, all over uh, Europe. And of course, we had uh, Iranian uh, scholars uh, and scholars from uh, Asia. Um, The result of this uh, conference was this uh, book, Iran in the International System between Great Powers and uh, Great uh, Ideas, which which appeared uh, early this uh, year. The book is organized uh, uh, along three levels. So one level is the international level, the influence of great powers uh, on Iran, historically and uh, current. the great powers always had a great great, uh, impact on uh, Iranian uh, policies. The second level would be uh, international organization and multilateralism. So we uh, focus on uh, the United Nations, the IEA, uh, uh, mainly on the GCPOA, the multilateral Iran uh, nuclear deal. And the third level would be uh, Iran in the region, uh, local and domestic issue issues looking from the uh, historical, political, economic and cultural uh, aspect. And uh, also we have uh, included the a historical prose uh, essay about an uh, eyewitness uh, of the Iranian uh, revolution and Amitra Shahamradi will read an excerpt uh, about this. So my chapter uh, is um, uh, about the GCPOA. I put the GCPOA into uh, a larger uh, political uh, context. I have uh, some personal uh, experience with the GCPOA. Uh, the GCPOA has been negotiated in Vienna uh, 2015 in the final phase for about one month. And I almost every day went to this uh, hotel Coburg, where the negotiations took place in order to get uh, informations uh, out uh, what's going on. So once in a while, uh, Secretary of State John Kerry or Foreign Minister, Iranian Foreign Minister Shavad Sarif would appear at the balcony and say something, not much about substance, but uh, eventually we got the impression that uh, in this hotel, uh, every full stop and every uh, comma had to be agreed uh, upon. And the result was uh, the best negotiated uh, arms control uh, agreement uh, in history with uh, comprehensive uh, verification uh, measures. And in in contrast, what we hear from uh, the Trump administration and from the Israeli prime minister, uh, this agreement is permanent. So it doesn't have an uh, expiration date. Uh, The preamble says that uh, Iran never will acquire uh, nuclear weapons and uh, the agreement is based on international law because it's enshrined in UN Security Council Resolution uh, 2231. Of course, certain provisions have an expiration date, technical provisions from 15 years to 35 years, but they can easily uh, extend it and uh, negotiate it so every arms control agreement has some expiration date like uh, the salt new salt uh, treaty uh, will expire next year so uh, it can be extended so that could have happened with this provision uh, provisions uh, uh, easily so it's permanent and based on international law uh, the hopes uh, which were attached to this agreement go way beyond the uh, nuclear uh, issue uh, of course Iran uh, hoped to get an uh, economic uh, boost uh, in the, in its economic uh, growth. actually what happened after 2015 in uh, uh, three years so the uh, Iranian economy uh, had uh, uh, tremendous uh, growth rates uh, the European Union also thought we could have some investment there better investment and trade with with Iran And uh, foremost, uh, the European Union, for the European Union, that was a masterpiece for its effective uh, multilateralism. And for the uh, Obama uh, administration, it was an uh, example of um, his uh, engagement uh, policy. This was all stopped uh, in uh, 2018. And in March, when uh, President Trump withdrew from the uh, agreement, uh, not least in order to uh, destroy some element of the uh, Obama uh, legacy, uh, since then we witnessed uh, we experienced uh, tensions in the Gulf regions. We had all these incidents, uh, the seizure of uh, tankers, attacks uh, on ships. Uh, they were all they are hard to attribute. So. Uh, unless somebody would uh, take the uh, responsibility like uh, when Iran shot down a US drone which uh, flew over Iranian uh, territory. Um, But this incidents can be real, they can be uh, constructed. Just want to remind you on the uh, Duncan uh, resolution in 1964, the second one, which was constructed. Um, the peak of this incident was the assassination of the of General Iranian General Soleimani on Iraqi territory. He was an official figure and um, basically he was equal to a defense uh, um, uh, minister. That uh, this was followed by a huge wave of uh, all government uh, demonstrations uh, of solidarity. Uh, but short after that, um, uh, Iranian revolutionary Gu- guards downed an Ukrainian uh, civilian uh, airliner. And then we saw anti government uh, protests. Uh, but simultaneously, there were protests against uh, foreign uh, interference in Iranian uh, affairs. All these uh, demonstrations ended uh, with the corona crisis, uh, which hit uh, Iran. Uh, very heavily, and then we saw a wave, a wave of solidarity among uh, ordinary uh, Iranians to help each other, to help in their uh, neighborhoods, because uh, Iran, uh, not least because of the sanctions, cannot provide um, the support like the West European uh, welfare uh, welfare uh, states. Uh, in spite of international requests, the Trump administration did not relieve uh, sanctions for humanitarian uh, reasons. On uh, the contrast, uh, um, the administration ratcheted up uh, the, uh, the, the sanctions. But what did not happen was a breakdown of the Iranian uh, economy. The Iranian o- economy developed a strong resilience. Uh, after 41 years uh, of sanctions. And if you look at the ranking of the uh, purchasing power parity, which means uh, the internal purchasing power, uh, Iran ranks still on the 19th uh, place uh, uh, of the world. So it, f- it uh, fell down from the 12th place to the 19th place because of the huge uh, uh, inflation. But, ne- but uh, nevertheless, Uh, the economy did not uh, fall apart. Um, So the maximum pressure of the U.S. goes way beyond the uh, nuclear uh, issue. Uh, So the sanctions target uh, not only the uh, nuclear program but the economy, uh, the missiles program, uh, the support uh, of Iran, the support of the militias uh, in the region, human rights Uh, human rights uh, but also European relations with uh, Iran so uh, uh, trade uh, uh, companies who trade with Iran do business with Iran are threatened with uh, sanctions uh, by uh, the the Trump administration the so-called secondary sanctions and the Iranian uh, sorry the uh, European companies Uh, would rather have trade with the United States than with Iran because it's 30 times uh, times, uh, higher. Um, So maximum pressure was something which targets uh, the regime and uh, the government uh, in Iran. And one condition attached uh, is uh, that Iran should uh, open up all its territory for, for inspections. So no including uh, military sites that's uh, no country in the world uh, would uh, do this uh, this reminds me on uh, nineteen fourteen when uh, Austria requested from Serbia to open up its uh, all its territory uh, to uh, for the search of the murderer of Ar Arctur- uh, Franz Ferdinand. This was the only condition uh, which Serbia did not. Uh, Accept and that was a pretense for Austria to go to war. So, all these conditions are basically conditions for uh, a capitulation. So, if it's not to prevent a nuclear weapon uh, in Iran, the best way to do would be uh, the GCPOA. Uh, unfortunately, Iran now is uh, reducing its. Uh, commitments of the GCPOA uh, as well, because Iran is saying that others uh, did not meet the uh, uh, commitments either, the US and also not the Europeans, to lift the uh, uh, sanctions. Uh, so if not the nuclear program is the uh, goal of the maximum pressure, so what? Uh, what is it? So uh, I would argue it's geopolitical. Uh, it, in spite that, that Iran's defense expenditures are very low compared to neighboring states. So Iran spends altogether about $16 billion uh, a year uh, compared to the Arab states, uh, which spent uh, about $85 uh, billion, uh, a year. Despite of that, Iran ranks in a, a geopolitical ranking, uh, global firepower worldwide on 14th uh, uh, place. So, this uh, ranking includes 50 criteria. Uh, so, it includes uh, working infrastructure, education uh, of the people, uh, population, size of the population, location, uh, coastlines, discipline of the military. Uh, so, that's what uh, runs counter to US interests in the uh, Persian Gulf region. And also, of course, uh, Uh, Israel and Saudi Arabia might think that might be this potential might be a threat uh, for them. So um, I come to some of my recommendations to them, uh, conclusions. So if the reason, the cause for this tension in the region uh, is hegemonic uh, competition and not so much the Iran's nuclear uh, program, uh, what uh, could be a face-saving uh, recommendation? So uh, both sides could renounce hegemony in the region. So that sounds uh, very naive, uh, but we have a historical analogy. And uh, when uh, U.S. President Nixon went to China in 1972, I uh, met uh, Mao Zedong uh, together with. Uh, Uh, Secretary of State uh, Kissinger. So they uh, adopted a Shanghai declaration at the beginning uh, of the summit where both sides uh, renounce hegemony in East Asia. Uh, So that was a face saving uh, document and Mao Zedong said, I do not want to support all these insurgents in East, communist insurgents in East Asia anyway. And President Nixon was, look for argu- was looking for arguments to get out of the uh, Vietnam War. So if you could apply this analogy to the Persian Gulf, um, Iran uh, wants to reduce its support for all the militias in the Middle East because it's very expensive anyway. So, And uh, President Trump uh, declared that, it would be, that he would want to withdraw Uh, American troops from the Middle East uh, 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 as well. So, the uh, 72 summit was basically the most successful uh, uh, summits of uh, big powers in in history. Uh, So it uh, provided some uh, phase seven uh, possibilities for further negotiations. So my second uh, recommendation is regional arms control negotiations. So the Iran, Iran's missile program uh, seems to be of concern for the Europeans, the U.S., and the regional uh, states. Even though I have to say, Iran's missiles cannot neither reach uh, the United States nor uh, Europe. Uh, however, it is it is an issue. Uh, but um, That could be addressed uh, in regional arms control negotiations, which include all regional powers. So Saudi Arabia's missile program is already more far reaching than that one of of Iran. Uh, Saudi Arabia's missiles have a range of 2,500 kilometers. Iran's uh, missiles so far uh, about uh, 2,000 kilometers. So address them in a regional arms control for Together with uh, confidence uh, building uh, measures, it could also address other uh, heavy weaponry and include notification of um, military maneuvers. So, and now we have another issue, the corona crisis showed that the virus does not know borders. Uh, The whole region is affected. Uh, There need, need to be a cooperation on health issues, technologically scientific, Uh, academic uh, cooperation uh, that could be addressed in a regional dialogue as well. So for the region, security is indivisible, uh, but health is indivisible uh, as well. Thank you.
1: So I guess it is my turn.
2: Yes, please.
1: Yes, thank you. Well, f- first of all, uh, I want to uh, thank Professor Gardner and uh, Shah Adi for including me in that remarkable uh, conference. Uh, walking around the University of Vienna is literally like walking around uh, the who's who of modern intellectual history, economic history. And for me, it was a great pleasure to be introduced to both the campus and to the uh, very interesting collection of people invited to the conference. There was a second reason I was very grateful to be included, and that was because uh, for the first time after I had left Iran, I had an occasion to be part of the same conference with people who I had worked with and taught with at Tehran University Faculty of Law. That was made possible because of that conference, and I was very, very grateful. The subject of my paper uh, in uh, this collection and it is a fascinating interdisciplinary uh, collection of essays, as the conference was, uh, is about um, the difficulties that Iran uh, is now facing uh, in finding its place in the international system. And the argument that I have made uh, is that even in the best of circumstances, and the Iranian regime is certainly not the best of circumstances, one could argue, as I believe, It might well be the worst of circumstances in terms of mismanagement of the economy, mismanagement of society, uh, mismanagement of politics. But even if it was the best of circumstances, uh, Iran would find itself in a very difficult uh, moment because I think we are experiencing uh, a very difficult moment of history. When I wrote the paper, uh, I, I thought it was very difficult. I think today, because of Corona, Uh, because of everything else that is happening, because of the demonstrations against a brutal murder of African-Americans in this country, the rise of populism, the crisis that I was referring to has become even more uh, serious. But the crisis I was referring to is both a global crisis and, very specifically, an Iranian uh, moment of crisis. The crisis is because I think, uh, as I wrote in the paper, that we we are in what scholars call the second machine age, where everything is becoming digitalized. And when you think about all of that, it has profound ramifications for international relations because many of the central concepts of international relations, many of the central concepts of political theory, many of the key ideas about modernity, for example, are being challenged in ways that need to be uh, included in our theoretical understanding need to be included in our uh, policy analysis. The notion of sovereignty, the notion that a state has sovereign rights over its territory, it has sovereign rights over uh, what uh, people in that uh, society read, the notion that we are sovereign over our own intellect and our own uh, uh, thoughts, are being challenged. Uh, the notion of private and public, the notion of uh, borders are being completely, as Professor uh, mentioned, uh, being challenged. So we are living in a very important moment where globalism is uh, uh, being uh, questioned in ways that has never been before, uh, and where many of these ideas coming from the second machine age are changing uh, the international system and are bringing about a new, uh, I think by necessity, a new sense of what the new international order would look like. Iran is facing itself, uh, facing this moment, after having experienced, in in my view, three of the most important tectonic shifts in its domestic politics for the last 2,000 years. It is a remarkable thing to say, but I think, uh, I, I believe it, that over the last 100 years, 150 years, Iran has experienced three shifts, domestic shifts, that have completely changed the fabric of Iranian society, the fabric of what it means to be an Iranian, the fabric of what it means to refer to Iran. First is the massive change in the the position of women. I talk about this as three migrations. Three millennium important, epochally important migrations. One is a massive migration of women from inside the house to the outside, from Andarun to Birun. Uh, In the book, uh, in the article, I I refer to Farzaneh Milani, who has talked about this as one of the three revolutions in modern Iranian history. I talk about it as one of the three epochal shifts in the fabric of Iranian society. The second one, no less important in some ways, at least as consequential, uh, is the changes brought about uh, by the uh, land reform. Feudalism ended in Iran essentially in 1963, and you have one of the most massive migrations domestically from the country uh, to the city. Iran went from being a country 90% uh, village-based to a country that today, is about 25% village-based, a process that took maybe 200, 300 years in Europe to uh, go through, has in Iran happened within the expanse of 40, 30 years. And in that 40 years, you have this massive migration to the city of people from the country who had brought their own cultural ethos to the city. And they had brought this country, cultural ethos to the city under conditions where uh, political discourse, political free discussion was not permitted in Iran. The only force from 1960s when this movement was happening, the only force that was more or less free to engage in uh, public discourse, to uh, have its own schools, to have its own uh, centers for collecting funds were the religious forces. And thus they began to organize this massive movement and thus, in 1979, uh, when revolution was about to happen, they were the most organized. They were the ones re- most ready to uh, uh, mobilize them. And the third migration that has happened, uh, again, I think it's the most massive migration in history in terms of the percentage of the population, uh, is the migration of Iranians into exile. Iran now has a diaspora unlike it has ever had in the past, and it's a diaspora that is very active economically, it's very powerful economically, scientifically, scholarly, entrepreneurially, and they are very much an integral part of what is going to happen to Iran and how Iran's future will be negotiated. So at a very uh, crucial moment in history, uh, Iran uh, is trying to find its place in this new order uh, with a regime that is, in my view, uh, increasingly, incredibly uh, incompetent, but also uh, uh, at the moment of its cultural history, of its political history, of its economic history, that is fraught with many, many uh, historic changes and dislocations. Thank you very much.
2: Is that okay? Yes, that's great. Thank you. Okay. <laughs>
3: Why are you so far away? Why didn't you hold me? But I see your splendor and your beauties. But I see your mighty mountains. But I smell your fragrant flowers. But I see your old trees. But I see your red sky. But I feel your warm sun. But I see your fertile earth. But I see your familiar people. Why didn't you want me? Why didn't you keep me, my country? I would like to thank Professor Milani and his wonderful team. And I'm very glad to be with you. My name is Mitra Shahmaradi. I come from Iran, Abadan. And I'm living for 41 years in Vienna, Austria. I write my poems and essays in German. I translate some of them into Farsi and my American colleague Mark Klink translates them into English. For our book Iran in International System, I also wrote my essay first in German and he translated it into English. Now I'm going to read a very short version of my article in uh, in the book in english for you this is the narrative of a young student sepide who lived during the time of the iranian revolution in tehran this is the year 1978 and sepide is about to finish her studies Frequently on on her way to the art university, and also in the evening after work, she sees the increasing unrest on the streets, which had earlier began in 1977. At some point, a state of emergency is declared, and nobody is allowed to be on the street after eight o'clock in the evening. It's very disturbing and threatening. Everyone feels this, including people who are not politically active. During this time, frightening rumors are very common and one is unsure what would happen next? Often, people are arrested by the secret police of the Shah regime only because of a forbidden book in their home. One evening, Sepide's family decides to sort out all the suspicious books in the house. They pack them well in plastic bags and bury them In the night under the pomegranate tree in this in their small garden. Why can a book put a life in danger? But more than that, why can a book be a threat to a system? Freedom of the media, freedom of expression and freedom for political parties are not self-evident. The political opposition groups are active in the underground, but are often discovered and arrested by the secret service. The political prisoners are ideologically mainly left-wing and religious. Sepide is sad and knows that people want to be understood, long for security and hope for a better economic life and more freedom. In Iran, religion has always had a familiar influence, especially among the weak, sections of the population. Now, also educated and intellectual women and men in Iran are beginning to appreciate religious values and to classify them almost euphorically as way wiser in their lives. The religious trend is winning more and more followers and support, which is ultimately exploited by the religious leaders for their goals. Unexpectedly, I feel a warm mist around me. Like a transparent whale, soft and fragrant like jasmine. I see a birthing cloud. It rains, rose water, washes all the dust of the war. A warm fog. A transparent veil. I see myself, I see God. Sometimes before the revolution, Sepide noted certain changes. At the universities, some female students are beginning to wear headscarves. The headscarf becomes a sign of freedom, a symbol of equality for women, rich and poor alike. Interestingly, the students with their headscarves are part of an overall movement against the Shah regime, against the perceived imported Western influence and for self-determination connected with the search for their own culture values and new identity. People, especially women, are not aware that this means, oh, sorry. These external forms have been used by women as a means of protest. People, especially women, are not aware that these means can later be used to oppress them, such as clothing regulations. Sepide is witness of this time and knows that women are an essential part of this movement and that they are equally involved in shaping the revolution. She soon realizes that there are winners and losers among women within the new system. Those women who do not feel bound to religious traditions and had certain personal freedom in the previous system must accept massive restriction in their daily life under the new order. The other group of the women gain previously unknown freedoms after the revolution of 1979, such as access to studies and work. People did not expect such a loss of their personal freedom after the revolution, especially those women who fought for freedom and played an active part in shaping the revolution. It is with regret that more and more women realize that restricting their clothing is not the only way they lost their freedom. Surprisingly, Sepide has to watch how soon after the revolution and the beginning of the Islamic Republic, many people begin to leave Iran. Over the years, more and more people go into exile. The largest diaspora in Iran's new history. Many young people are reluctant to leave their family and their homeland, to go abroad to study or work. Sepide is sad that Iranians who are close to their families and they love their country, have to leave their parents and their homeland. Sepide and the people in her generation are sometimes desperate when the generation after the revolution does not understand why there was this revolution. Because they hear stories about the situation before the revolution. It was comfortable, we had no dress code, We went to discos, singers performed. There was more social freedom and fun, and much more. The new generation idolizes the time unknown to them and asks, what was problem? In their imagination, the Shah, his family and father, and even the old monarchy and religion before Islam in Iran are given greater value. Sepide remembers the last speech of the Shah. I leave my country, Iran, so that no more blood will be shed. Now, after 40 years, Zepit hears from the Iranian intellectuals who were then against the Shah, complains that the Shah left his people alone, did not remain like a good father to defend and protect the country. Sepide sees this as a sad state and a great irony. Sepide always carries a special memory within herself of the short, wonderful time in Iran, immediately after the victory of revolution, in which there really was Freedom. It's springtime. Many celebrate joyful the New Year festival Noruse and the revolution victory with the optimistic vision to live in a free and righteous country. When did the sun disappear? When did love emigrate? Thank you very much.
2: Thank you, everyone. We have a few questions coming in from viewers. There are a few about the JCPOA, so I'm going to combine two of them. Um, Someone is asking, since the condition is deteriorating regarding JCPOA, and there is some violation on the Iranian side as well, what is your opinion about the future of the deal? Is it going to survive? And another viewer asks, um, do you think the JCPO could be revived if there is a new administration in the US next year?
0: Um, thank you. Thank you for the uh, questions. They're uh, very important questions. Um, uh, we can um, really be skeptical whether the GCPA uh, will survive. And um, since uh, President Trump withdrew uh, 2018, after one year, Iran started to um, reduce uh, its commitments uh, of to the agreement as well. Uh, Iran is arguing that's within the framework of the agreement, which is true because Article 26 and 36 would say if some party to the the agreement would violate it. Uh, The other parties would not be bound to it uh, uh, as well. Um, So uh, Iran on a very limited level uh, started uh, several steps. Uh, Iran undertook uh, increasing the uh, uh, uranium enrichment uh, capabilities beyond this Uh, uh, 3.76%. Uh, it increased the number of uh, centrist futures, introduced some new generation and also uh, increased uh, a stockpile of low enriched uranium. Uh, still everything is reversible. So that was a reaction to the Europe, mainly to the Europeans because the Europeans were not able uh, to um, abide by the agreement as well uh, to uh, lift uh, the sanctions. and. The Europeans couldn't do though because they were afraid of the secondary sanction of the US, and that was a miscalculation by the by the Iranians uh, because the Europeans could not meet the expectations uh, of Iran, and now Iran is uh, playing with the idea we could get a nuclear weapon if we wanted. So uh, that trends the idea that Iran never will require, acquire nuclear uh, nuclear weapons. So. Uh, That is reversible. Uh, That's uh, possible if sanctions are lifted. And uh, that might be possible after the change in the administration uh, in Washington because Biden of course was part of the Obama administration uh, which uh, negotiated uh, the agreement. Uh, The Europeans started the the talks, but later on the uh, uh, Obama administration, uh, was included in the negotiations, and finally, that was an important uh, contribution by the by the U.S. So I don't think that uh, a Biden administration would go back to this, but the Biden administration would attach uh, several other, probably other uh, conditions to the agreement. Maybe not uh, dis- uh, dissolve the agreement altogether, but negotiate. Uh, some extensions of some uh, provisions, so I would be optim- uh, cautiously optimistic that the Gcpa uh, would be revived with some changes under uh, biden, uh, biden administration uh, tensions other issues of course uh, the missile issue uh, will uh, have still to be discussed because the missile- missiles are not part of the GCPOA. so that would be uh, could be done best in the regional framework so uh, so the Chisiea is not bad altogether, but it will die if there will be another Trump administration.
2: Thank you. Professor Milani, this question is for you. What is the impact of the migration of villagers to the city and on both villages and the city?
1: I think the impact on the village gradually has been to, uh, first of all, uh, make Iran um, very seriously. Uh, in a crisis in terms of its food uh, security. Uh, Iran, uh, even with its current population, and uh, uh, Khamenei and uh, some of his supporters keep talking about the new parliament, for example. One of the only things they want to do is increase the population to 150 million, Uh, never thinking about where they're going to feed this, what is the issue of food security. So one aspect has been the damage that was done Uh, even uh, under the Shah, uh, to the agricultural system because many uh, farmers could not sustain themselves with the small plot of land that they were given. And furthermore, uh, the new monies that were coming in, the petrol dollars that were coming in, made the cities a magnet. This is a pattern that has happened in other petrol-rich countries. Uh, And farmers could make more money selling shoelaces in Tehran than they could farming the small piece of land that they had. Uh, in the countryside. Uh, in the cities, uh, it created shanty towns, it, it created poor sections uh, outside the major cities, uh, crowded places, sometimes uh, very, very poor, sometimes unhygienic. Uh, and the only people who were there organizing, the only people who were very much in uh, sync with the culture that uh, peasants, most of the peasants were bringing to the uh, cities, uh, were religious forces, so it it isn't in retrospect at all surprising that uh, they won because that population, that massive new multi-million population in uh, and around the cities, uh, unincorporated into the ethos of a democratic society or an ethos of modernity, became foot soldiers uh, of the Islamic revolution, which was in a profound sense both a counter-reformation against everything that religious reformers were trying to do uh, before the revolution and after the revolution, uh, and the counter-revolution against the values of the constitutional revolution. Uh, And now, I think the turmoil that we see in Iran in the last 40 years is partly the result of the fact that many of the forces that brought the revolution many of the forces that thought through the revolution they would get a republic, more freedom, more independence, are finding that none of this has realized. Iran has become more, independent, more dependent on Russia, more dependent on China. Iran's economy has been uh, uh, turned into a basket case, and uh, thus uh, that population uh, that became the foot soldiers of the revolution last year took to the streets and became the foot soldiers of the next change. So much of these poor uh, new urbanites have turned against the regime that Mr. Khamenei had to uh, reinterpret the very concept of mustazafin They used to refer to these people who have come to the country, from the country to the city, who were deprived as the mustazaf. Now he said, no, these are not the real mustazaf, people took to the streets. You, the police force, the Basij, you are the true Mustafa. So it has really changed the fabric and continues to change it.
2: Thank you. Professor Shahmadi, this is a question for you. A viewer says, thank you very much for your great speech. Their question is, what do you suggest for young Sepi days in Iran who are born after the 1980s? What can they do to help change the situation?
3: I don't think so that uh, we can tell them how they can change the situation, but we can explain them why we had our generation do it because they don't know. They think uh, always they heard a lot of good things about the situation before revolution and they think we were crazy and why we make it. And that is what I wrote and I say. I mean, uh, they should know. They should know what we had if now it's not better it not, it doesn't mean that it was that time very good and we were all uh, crazy to make a revolution this revolution was from everybody it was from all the people not only the religious people and, and that is that what i say they should know they should know and what they uh, how they live now, I cannot uh, explain how they live.
2: That is what I think. Thank you. I think this is a question maybe all of you might want to comment on. The viewer is asking, how can the US build relationships and demonstrate goodwill towards Iran's citizens in a way that would not be immediately rejected by the regime?
1: Who wants to go first?
0: (laughs) Professor Milani, please. Okay. Uh,
1: First of all, I think uh, we have to establish uh, one important fact. There is relationship between people, and then there is relationship between governments. Uh, The relationship between governments need not always be the same as the relationship between people. Furthermore, I think there isn't one Iran. There is the Iran of Mr. Khamenei, who is absolutely intransigently unabashedly anti-American and doesn't seem to want to normalize relations. He has used every occasion that he's had, including the period before the Trump administration came to make sure that the nuclear deal did not translate to normalized relations with the United States. But in Iran, there are other people who are trying to normalize relations. There were people in that Vienna conference from Iran, who understood that the normalized relations with the United States is not to the detriment of uh, Iran. So I think uh, if any administration wants to establish uh, normalized relations with Iran, for example, if they want to encourage the Iranian people to uh, fight for their rights, uh, they should show that they are on the side of the people. Uh, The Trump administration's ban, for example, on the travel by Iranians, for example, to me is extremely counterproductive. The ban on medicine is extremely counterproductive. There should be no ban on medicine. There should be no ban on food. The people of Iran should know that any administration here is on the side of the people. If you pressure the people uh, and then allow the regime to make money off uh, the ban, for example, if you allow regime activists to travel all over the United States, get visas to Europe. You, we now have this uh, judge who has gotten a visa to Europe, and nobody knows who gave them, whereas Iranian students can't get visas. That kind of a thing has to change, and the Iranian people have to know that they have a friend, not just in the United States, in the people of the United States, but also in uh, any uh, prudent uh, administration in Washington.
0: Um, yeah, I agree uh, entirely with Professor Milani that uh, Iran's uh, government, or uh, some say the regime, is not a monolithic uh, block. So there are several uh, fractions, and the Iranian political system is very complicated. And I guess Professor Milani could uh, lecture one uh, semester to explain the Iranian uh, political uh, uh, system. So we should uh, be careful who is saying what and. We hear once in a while voices, very strong voices uh, out from uh, Iran against uh, Israel and against uh, the United States. It does not reflect uh, the whole uh, political uh, picture in Iran. And I just want to remember you that Iran several times tried to reach out uh, to the US administrations, that especially after 9-11, Iran tried to do it uh, several times. Uh, showed its solidarity with uh, the uh, US. Uh, but unfortunately, President Bush put uh, Iran on the axis of evil at that time. Uh, but it worked then with the Obama administration under uh, the uh, negotiating the uh, G- GCPOA. Uh, so Iran, once in a while, uh, also helped uh, the US uh, in military terms. So Iran gave the US military. Uh, advice about uh, after 9-11 about the Taliban. So it's not uh, all lost. And there are always signs of uh, possible future cooperation. And uh, now I guess one uh, optimistic, which is very little of sign is the prisoners exchange where we had uh, last, uh, last week. So this Could be uh, uh, built upon. Uh, Iran has um, some, uh, so there are isolationists in Iran who do not want to have contacts with uh, the United States altogether. But there are also those who are open, and the Revolutionary Guards have have several factions as well. So some uh, call for the destruction of Israel once in a while. Uh, Others want to have an open economy because they're entrepreneurs. They want to have investment, they want to uh, make money. Uh, So the West and uh, the US administrations uh, have to be careful what they are doing. Right now they're pushing Iran, they're pushing Iran to the uh, hardline, uh, to to strengthen the hardliners. So we see it already in the parliament where the hardliners have a, a majority. Uh, so, uh, the US administration is uh, preparing for regime, regime change, but not in the way probably they want to. So, the conservatives might be uh, prevailing, not those who co- could cooperate with. So, the, the way to do is to strengthen those uh, reformers, uh, those who are open uh, for contacts, uh, and uh, not these uh, hardliners in, in, in uh, Iran uh, uh, itself. Um, people-to-people contact is very important. Iran has very excellent scientists, what we have known now uh, uh, about during the corona crisis uh, in the plasma research, they were the first in the world to find out something. So we should not reject uh, Iranian cooperation on the level of academics, science, uh, technology uh, that might at some point, if the political conditions are appropriate, spill over uh, to the uh, political level. Uh, change in the administration in the US would be one possibility. Maybe Trump changes his mind uh, as well, uh, can be. So it, as he changed his mind towards North, North Korea at some point, uh, so um, it's it's possible. But one thing I have to say, one g- general point, Iran is not, dip- no matter what, Government that is in Iran. Iran is not going to negotiate from the position of weakness. That's ma- so maximum pressure does not work. Iran has to be has to have a feeling that they are negotiating to, from the position of strength. So that uh, has to be respected, and then some cooperation uh, uh, might be might be possible. May I just
1: add one yeah. sentence, if I may? Very- sure one sentence Uh, i think uh, one of the things we haven't talked about is the the two elephants in the room that's the role of russia and china and how these pressures might very much push uh, elements in iran who want to align with russia and china into a full alliance thank you
2: thank you uh, we have a few questions about Iran's relations uh, to other countries in the region. One viewer is asking if Professor Gardner could elaborate more on Iran wanting to reduce its commitments to its non-state partners in the region. Is this the view of conservatives in Iran as well?
0: Probably probably as well, uh, some of them, because um, some uh, want, do not want the engagement of Iran uh, all over the region. So they want to focus to to build up uh, its own uh, government regime without ec- too much uh, external commitments and uh, and 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 influence. Uh, that's possible, but we do have hardliners who have the opposite view and uh, say we need uh, all this. Uh, to support all these non-state actors and militias because we need a second line uh, of defense, which sounds a little bit reasonable uh, because Iran's uh, defense expenditures is very low and the conventional weapons uh, are not very modern in spite of that what Iran is pretending. So they're, they're very modern. So they need some support from non-state actors. Uh, but um, uh, so they have the experience also from the long uh, Iran-Iraq War when uh, Iran was uh, defenseless uh, practically. So that's why I have the missile program as well. So they will not give up the support for Hezbollah and uh, other militias. Uh, I have to say these non-state actors they act mainly mm-hmm. autonomous. They need the support by Iran uh, in many ways, but they are not proxies uh, of Iran. So if you have uh, militias like the Khatib Hisbollah in Iraq, so they have their own agenda. So that's not what the media here transports, that they are uh, puppets of the Iranian regime. So that's, that's uh, definitely not true.
2: Thank you. Um, a question for Professor Milani. I know we're running a little bit over time, but there's just a few more questions I wanted to get to. Um, for Professor Milani. even if the JCPOA is resolved, hypothetically, don't you think there, are, there will still be friction between Iran and the West? Isn't there a fundamental cultural and civilizational clash between the Islamic Republic, not the people, but the Islamic regime, and the West? Uh,
1: let me just say one word. Uh, about Iran's defense budget. I, I think when we talk about the Iran's defense budget, we have to remember that uh, the number that people talk about is the official number, the number of uh, the line items in the budget. But anybody who has studied Iran, and I'm sure Professor Gartner knows this better than I do, there are all kinds of ways that the IRGC and the religious endowments uh, spend money uh, on these proxies, spend money on the cultural apparatus, spend money on training these things that don't appear in the budget. So, uh, while well, I know Saudi Arabia, for example, is incomparable in terms of how much money they spend, but in uh, talking about Iran's proxies, I think this is an important uh, factor. I think so long as Mr. Khamenei is the supreme leader, uh, there is a In reconcilable tension between the United States and the West, essentially, but mostly the United States. He sees the United States as the embodiment of of the West. He sees the United States as the devil incarnate, uh, the greater devil, he calls it the greater Satan. And these are ideas that he has had long before he even became the supreme leader. These are the ideas that you see in his translations of Sege de for example, when he was a small time clergy, who translated some of these works in the 60s and 70s, and you see a rabid anti-Americanism, the same rabid anti-Americanism you see in Seyed Hoth, you see in Khamenei. And till he is in charge, I don't think uh, uh, there can be a resolution of these tensions. But uh, once he is not, uh, no longer on the scene, I, I think the, uh, many governments, that, any government that can will succeed him uh, any regime that will succeed him would be as intransigent and i think uh, historically there is a lot of amity between the united states and iran if you look at the history of this relationship uh, long before the cold war there was much that connected iranians to the americans the Amer- iranians had a very favorable image of the americans americans had a very favorable image of iranians you would be surprised how much, for example, Iran was a favorite subject amongst the founding fathers of this country, how they uh, supported Iran as the antidote to radicalism in the region. So it's an old relationship. uh, And uh, the harmonies of the world, I think, are passing, hopefully soon, uh, passing moments in what could be a relationship of mutual respect, mutual respect for each other's independence, uh, uh, the recognition that they can be uh, strategic friends rather than a strategic enemies.
2: Thank you. Uh, one more question for Professor Gartner. Um, a viewer is asking if you can elaborate on Iran's relations with Israel. This viewer um, disagrees that um, Iran's relations with Israel are not based upon issues of hegemony in the region, but rather clearly and directly aimed towards the elimination of the quote Zionist entity as has been stated many times by the supreme leader. He's hoping you can expand on this a little bit and respond to it.
0: Um, Yeah, we hear some unfortunate voices out of uh, Iran uh, periodically. So basically what uh, we remember all is the rhetoric by uh, Ahmadinejad, especially. Uh, but I, and at that point, I have to repeat what I said before that uh, Iran is not a monolithic block and not everything what is said has the approval by the government or the supreme leader uh, uh, as well. Uh, so that's some bad language we hear. Others would disagree in Iran. and um, But Iran does not have, so what, whatever the rhetoric is, doesn't have the capability uh, to destroy Israel. Israel has a much more, more, more modern uh, army. Uh, Israel has nuclear weapons. So uh, we shouldn't take it too seriously. But unfortunately, the last couple uh, of years, uh, the last year, uh, we heard voices from many sides uh, which called for obliteration, extinction of the other side. So we hear several voices out of Israel as well, uh, that the tentacles of uh, Iran uh, should be cut off. Uh, President Trump spoke about the obliteration of Iran, the destruction of cultural goods. So that's a bad language, uh, which could lead to a uh, self-fulfilling post-prophecy. So I hope in Iran, Mm -hmm. those who have a more uh, moderate uh, uh, language and rhetoric uh, would uh, basically uh, prevail Otherwise, uh, everybody would refrain to this uh, quotations what you, uh, the, the, the person who asked the question uh, was, was, uh, was saying. Uh, yeah, yeah, all right.
2: Thank you, I know we've run over time. If, if anyone has any more comments they'd like to add, please do, but if not, I think we can end here. Thank you all, we're receiving a lot of comments. Um, Thanking you all for your talks. Um, Professor Shahmaradi, people are thanking you for your beautiful reading. Um, We at Iranian Studies, thank you all for uh, participating this morning and we look forward to talking to you soon. Thank you. Thank
0: you. Thank Thank you. you.
2: Goodbye.
0: Goodbye.